Hello and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say thank you to all of our online donors that make this podcast possible. Today, Adam is asking me questions behind the sermon about my teaching, the economic ethics of miracles. So we're doing something new with the Paradox Podcast. We have Adam here with us. Adam, hello. How are you? Hello. Doing great. Good to be back. So the thing that we're doing different is we really believe here at Paradox that sermons start discussions and not end them. And so one way we came up with to continue the discussion is Adam has written some questions of his own, as well as he's taken questions that were written on comment cards um, at Paradox Church in response to the sermon I gave this past Saturday. And Adam is going to be asking those questions as well as questions that he has to talk about what goes into a sermon, what gets cut, and why this sermon came to be in this form. So I have not seen these questions beforehand, so I'm kind of excited to see what happens here. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, So we're talking about John chapter 6, your sermon, The Economic Ethics of... Miracles. Miracles. That was it. Thank you for that. Okay, so first question... John chapter 6 is Jesus feeding the 5,000, and that's how it's commonly known. This is a really common story in Christianity. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard it a lot. And even if you haven't grown up in, in Christianity, it's probably a story that some are familiar with. It's in all four Gospels. We, we see it all over the place. So what is growing up as, as a Christian, and I'm curious if your experience was at all similar to mine or very different. Growing up as a Christian, when you were told this story, the feeding of the 5,000, what was supposed to be the primary lesson that you learned from John chapter 6 growing up? I think the question or the lesson was, do you believe it? Mm. So do you believe this miracle occurred? Yes or no? Yeah. And if the answer is no, you can't be in the club. And if the answer is yes, then you can be. Mm-hmm. It's a requirement to be a Christian is to believe it. And if you don't believe the miracle occurred in a supernatural physics bending, a physical bending of reality, then you can't actually believe in Jesus is mm-hmm. what was taught to me. Yes, yeah, so I would say that's really similar to my experience. A lot of times especially with the miracles in John specifically, it's, you'll see like Jesus turns water into wine or Jesus heals a paralytic. And it's like, Jesus does a magic trick. And if you pray enough or say the right things, then Jesus will do a magic trick in your life too. And we kind of see that in John chapter six. So to kind of continue on that, what are, what are some of the problems or, or the harmfulness that you found with interpreting the miracles or the stories, specifically feeding the 5,000 in that way? What you've just described as an external kind of faith Uh, or a propositional faith, the idea that here is what the organization believes, do you accept it, which doesn't speak at all to any kind of interior transformation or interior journey. Mm. There's nothing that requires the person to change other than assenting to the belief, right? Right. So what you've essentially told me with that proposition and that propositional faith is a faith that I would say is dead. Mm. And the fact that Um, it's like you have to rearrange mental furniture to align with the organization to be part of the club, which isn't inspiring to me at all. Mm. And it doesn't really require or cost anything from the person. Whereas when you look at what this story is really about, in my opinion, it requires a massive change that is very practical and very difficult to do at the same time. Mm. Nice. So, Getting into the the deeper meanings or some of the symbolisms of Jesus feeding the 5,000, 
Um, obviously, in this series in John in general, we're looking at some of the allegory and some of the symbolisms that take place in the miracles. And you talked about this idea of scarcity versus abundance, which we'll hopefully get to more in just a second. Um, but before we get to that, just so people can see kind of what goes behind planning a sermon, was there ever a different symbolism that you saw in John chapter six or a different direction that you wanted to take the sermon besides talking about scarcity or abundance or a different lesson that you learned that you didn't end up going with? Yeah, I was going to talk about um, how people wanted a conqueror to be for, for a Messiah. And the, the sermon that this, that this started out as was I had this idea that to ask the question, like, wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to hand out swords or in our American culture, guns, Yeah, guns for a, a violent uprising to uh, conquer the Roman, the Roman empire. Um, and while that may sound ridiculous, <laughs> the fact is that's what people were expecting 2000 years ago. Not only that, I would argue that that's what people are expecting in America with the return of Christ in the future Mm. is not Jesus bringing bread Mm. to feed the hungry, but to feed, uh, to, to arm the, the, the righteous and to declare war on the wicked and to exterminate the wicked. See, we just heard a little sermon there that like, maybe it'll come up later, (laughs) but only here on behind the sermon. That that was fantastic. So that was plan A. Mm -hmm. And I ditched that because... Um, well, the reason, the reason why I ditched that was because it's black history month and I couldn't figure out a way to preach that without being the, um, the tone deaf white guy (laughs) telling, um, African Americans that they need to practice more nonviolence. Yes. Obviously that was essential to Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, civil rights campaign. Um, campaigns is a bit of a a bad term for it, but his civil rights work Mm -hmm. was, uh, nonviolence. And while I get that and I fully support that, I also see it's very problematic for a white person to charge in and remind uh, African-Americans and people of color to practice nonviolence when white Americans are the ones that are actively oppressing them. Okay. So that's why I had to discard that sermon. Um, and I felt like that this sermon and seeing this symbolism um, within this miracle lined up better with what I could say uh, coming from from my heritage and, and who I am could say about uh, Black History Month that could add to the conversation. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get to Martin Luther King and uh, some of that in a little bit, but that actually kind of segues perfectly into another question I had. Um, it's kind of a more of a personal question, but um, how did you as a white male kind of educate yourself on minorities and uh, different cultures outside your own because i think the the tendency that i've found a lot is when we're critically looking at our own tribe or our own culture right it's very easy to get defensive about our past and very easy to uh, put up barriers and walls and say like oh no no america never did that or america's always great or like you know this culture always did great things and we don't want to talk about some of the darker sides um, and yet, even as somebody of, of mixed descent as I am, you've educated me, I think, a lot on, on different minority groups and uh, showing empathy for those outside of our tribe. So, like, how did you, how did you overcome that kind of obstacle? And maybe, maybe overcome isn't the right word because it, it implies that it's completely done. But uh, how, how do you continue to educate yourself to, to teach others about that and that kind of thing? So one of my mentors is Maury Jackson, who's at La Sierra University. 
and I stay in touch with him frequently. And I saw him a couple years ago. This was before I would ever preach on the race issue because I was so, <laughs> I was so terrified to speak on it. Sure. Um, I just felt like I would say the wrong thing and I didn't, you know, I, I don't believe this now, but back then I felt like it wasn't my place to say anything, um, that this was uh, an issue for people of color and they would advocate for themselves and, mm -hmm. and do their own things. So that's what I really strongly believed a few years ago. And then I spoke to Maury, we got lunch and I got lunch with him in March. And so I was talking to him and I asked how he was doing and he said, I'm exhausted. And I said, well, why are you exhausted? He said, oh, because every church invites me to speak at their church for Black History Month. Mm. And I said, oh, well, you know, that must be exciting to be able to speak on these topics and speak in them in an open way. He's like, it's fine. He said, the problem is Black History Month is where we're supposed to all talk about black history and not uh, just black people talk about black history. Hmm. And he looked right at me and he said, you, just like every other pastor, should be talking about black history. Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, well, why do you why do you go then? Why do you go to these churches if you feel like that pastor should be speaking about it? And he said, because I know that if I don't go to that church and speak about black history, then the church will just pass and not speak about black history. Wow. And that was, I mean, that was a wake up call. I think it, the ability for a pastor, especially a white pastor to not speak about black history during black history month is, uh, whether we want to admit it or not is rooted in privilege. Hmm. Um, and it, it was that moment that I realized that I, I will probably say the wrong thing. <laughs> probably, I mean, I know I have said <laughs> wrong things, I need to learn. I need to educate. I need to read black authors. I need to um, just be open more to, to more of these ideas. And I have to take on this responsibility as well, not because I'm saving black history for people as much as I believe that every church, regardless of whoever the pastor is, should be speaking about black history during the month of February. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we'll come back to, to, like I said, some of that in, in subsequent questions, especially Martin Luther King, which you talked about in your sermon. Um, but coming back to the miracle for a little bit um, in, in John chapter six, you talked about the symbolism of Jesus feeding the 5,000 of being this idea of scarcity versus abundance. Um, and as you were preaching, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, this is a a really big theme that we see in the Gospels in general. The first example that came to my mind was like the, the prodigal son in Luke 15, where the older son at the end of the parable is talking about this this exact same idea, basically, with his father and saying, like, you've given my younger brother everything but what's left for me. Um, so come kind of talking about John chapter six, why do you think that this idea was so important during Jesus's day? Um, why, why is this something that Jesus continually talks about, whether it's in Luke 15 or, or like you preached on in John six? I think because it's a message of grace, ultimately, hmm. and the idea that to be alive on this planet is a gift. And the only way it's a gift is if this planet and what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis has more than we need in order to enjoy being alive. Um, and you can imagine Jesus showing up as a poor peasant uh, 2,000 years ago being taxed for 70 to 90% of his income by the Roman Empire. You can imagine that people didn't feel like there was enough. Yeah. And the reason that I believe John couches the story during the Passover feast is that Jesus is trying to show people that they can be liberated from their oppressor because as much as they can take your taxes, they cannot take your mind. Mm. 
And if your mind can see that this world has enough for everybody, then, uh, then at that point you can live a much happier life. If you look at this world as a place that's scarce and that you have to get as much as you can while you can because somebody else will take it, uh, I, I think that that will lead to a very unhappy life. And I think that Jesus was trying to get people to live happy lives with what they had and what they were experience, experiencing. But um, that's why I think he tried so adamantly to move people from scarcity to abundance. Nice. Um, it, it might be like a, a similar kind of response or a similar kind of answer, but um, why is this message still valuable to us today or, or this idea, I guess, of, of scarcity and abundance? Why, why should we, uh, since we have so much abundance in where we are, at least where we're based here in Redlands, California, um, why should we care about that? We're the richest nation on planet Earth right now, as far as I know. I have, can't cite a statistic for that, but I've been told <laughs> that, right? We're one of the richest nations in the history of the world, and we are convinced that we don't have enough. Like, I don't know... I've, I've rarely met people, regardless of political party, who feel like we have enough. And it's always about how we can increase our wealth. It's always about how uh, if we accept too many immigrants, we won't have enough to care for them and provide education for them. Uh, it's always about how there's just, it, it, things are scarce. Um, and I feel like this is why the message of Jesus is really important to us today, because every American I know struggles with greed, myself included, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. And capitalism orients us toward greed. And we have to be honest about that. And this is where I think the message of Jesus is extremely valuable to us in 2020. Yeah. Great, great. Um, getting into a couple of questions that we had from uh, our connection cards at Paradox Church. How do you think that America's food waste plays into this whole idea of scarcity and abundance? We kind of talked about that a little bit, but... Um, specifically talking about food waste and environmentalism. How do you think that plays a role? So this is why I use that Richard Rohr quote, which, you know, is nothing new for me. I use Richard <laughs> Rohr quotes all the time. <laughs> Paradox. Uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And what he talks about is when we talk about abundance, the people that really live from a perspective of abundance recognize that there's more than enough for our needs, but never enough for our greed. And so when it comes to food waste and us being indifferent toward the amount of food that we throw away, that is a greedy posture, not an abundant posture. Yeah. An abundant posture looks at what the world can provide and saying, wow, there is definitely enough space for us to be able to feed everybody. Um, a, a greedy person will look at uh, you know, a mountainside and figure out how to mine it and destroy the integrity of that mountain and destroy the ecosystems of it because they feel like they don't have enough money. So they got to just destroy nature as much as possible to do that. Uh, somebody who's coming from a position of abundance will work with environmentalists to understand how to balance ecosystems while at the same time um, pushing progress forward. I think that's the big difference between abundance and scarcity to recognize that the planet does have enough as long as we take care of it, mm. uh, as opposed to, well, I'm going to die soon anyway, so let's just destroy the planet and not worry about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, th this is an idea that I, I've, I've heard before as well. Um, th this, mes this, uh, this miracle in John chapter 6, you mentioned it, is, is very grace-oriented. Um, it's very uh, generous, generosity inspiring, I guess, or like inspires generosity. 
Um, but I've heard the, the critique, well, what about working for yourself or like pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? Like, um, what about, uh, creating a better environment for yourself to live in essentially. Um, so like if, if you feel like you don't have enough rather than other people around you being generous and, and living in abundance and giving, what about like taking care of yourself and that kind of thing? What would you say to that, that idea within the context of, of Jesus's miracles or Jesus's miracle, I should say in John six. So whenever we tell someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, we have to recognize that uh, white Americans have used that phrase toward African-Americans throughout American history. Well, I mean, after the Emancipation Proclamation to uh, justify the economic imbalance of America. So that's a really dangerous term to, to use. Um, personal responsibility is very important. Uh, that being said, the majority of Christians I know love to talk about other people's responsibilities before they talk about their own. <laughs> yeah. So for you to look at somebody else and say that they need to work more is always a frightening statement because you are entering then into uh, a territory of judgment. Yeah. And I would say that you should worry first and foremost about yourself and learn the value of hard work within your own life and uh, what, what hard work means to you. And then understand that people come from different backgrounds and have their own different struggles and have their own different environments that they grew up in and try to learn about all of that stuff before you charge in with answers. Mm -hmm. And the only time you charge in with answers is really when that person asks you for answers or asks mm -hmm. you for your opinion. You have to earn the right to share your opinion with somebody. And I think that so often we love to be quickly, we love to quickly judge another and say, this, if this person just did this, then that would solve their problems. But it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. And I think that Jesus really harped on this when he talked about uh, the problems of judgment, specifically of other people. Yeah, it's a great little phrase, at least for, for me to remember, like you have to, you have to earn mm -hmm. the right to share your opinion with someone. That's a, yeah, that's a, great little phrase that I, I'm going to remember. Um, one last question, at least from our, uh, from, uh, from church on Saturday, uh, one of our church members noticed that you used, uh, CE and BCE instead of AD and BC. What's, uh, can you talk a little bit about the context behind that and, and why you choose to use CE and BCE? Yeah, I, uh, actually I get this question quite a bit and I'm glad oh, that nice. it's being asked because it's a question that I have to answer, uh, quite frequently, but it's not a question that's on record. So, oh, cool. um, the, the, our whole calendar is based around Christianity, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's the year 2020 and it's the year 2020 because this is when we assume Jesus Christ was born, was the year zero, right? Right. So Christians have done pretty well with orienting time around Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> You can imagine, though, that if you're not Christian and you're living in the year 2020, you are instantly othered um, or made to feel like your perspective, your religion, your um, worldview is living at a, in a subservient kind of lifestyle, right? So for that reason, the academic world has recently, in my lifetime, switched from using B.C. and A.D., which is before Christ, and Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Um, the academic world has switched or moved away from using B.C. and A.D. and switched to B.C.E. and C.E., which is before the Common Era and the Common Era. 
I do that because I want to lend academic credibility to our sermons. Mm -hmm. And I have a sense that if an atheist or an agnostic walks into our church and they hear us using BCE and CE, they will instantly tune in that much more because they'll be like, oh, this is somebody who understands uh, who understands and cares for people's perspective outside of Christianity. So I use the same years. I mean, BCE and CE still use the same years. It's 2020 CE or, or 2020 AD. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do it in an effort uh, to be kind to people who are outside of the Christian faith who walk into our church doors. Nice. Now it's on record. That's, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, getting into a little bit of the stories that you told with uh, with Martin, Martin Luther King, um, how did... Martin Luther King uh, Jr. play into this idea that Jesus presents in the miracle in John 6 of feeding the 5,000. Why did you think those things related and why did you choose to use those stories? So a lot of people don't understand that Martin Luther King Jr. was very interested in economic reform. Uh, I mean, the March on Washington with I Have a Dream is is, is a march and a sermon about the economic reform of America. Um, not only that, but some things that got cut out of this sermon just for time Ooh, yay, was yay. there was a story about Martin Luther King uh, while he was in jail in Birmingham. He told us uh, at a sermon toward the end of his life where uh, he was there was a white prison guard who was calling him all sorts of racist names. But in this sermon, he talks about how like when he's in prison, he likes to do a little converting. <laughs> so he was trying to convert the prison guard to the, the cause of the civil rights movement, essentially. And. After hearing this white prison guard spew all sorts of racist garbage the first day and the second day, on the third day, Martin Luther King finally asked him, well, how much do you make? How much are they paying you to keep me in this jail cell? And when the, sh- the white prison guard told him, Martin Luther King paused for a moment and said, why aren't you marching with us? Uh-huh. And... When I heard that story for the first time, it made me realize that he was very interested in civil rights, obviously, but mm-hmm. it was also something much bigger because he says in that sermon, uh, which is called the drum major instinct, he says in that sermon that um, the thing, the same thing that oppresses the Negro, are his words, uh, in America today, which was 1968, is the same thing that oppresses the poor white. And the only thing the government can offer poor whites that it can't offer the Negro is that they are better than the Negro. Yeah. And so here's a white prison guard who is being steamrolled by the capitalist system. But the reason he's going along with it is because the government has told us we'll treat you better than them as long as we can keep oppressing you. And white Americans, my ancestors, uh, went along with that because they felt like it was worthwhile to be part of that as long as they could oppress or be better than them. And so much of that feeds into our ego uh, and our tribalistic culture. Yeah. I do remember seeing that, on, uh, I think, on your slides when I came in the office one time. And that, yeah, it was really, really uh, powerful. It was heartbreaking to cut that. I cut it late on a Friday. It just wasn't <laughs> fitting and it was too long. And I love that story. It may make an appearance in another sermon yeah. at some point. Well, that's, again, that's why you have this. I think that's so cool to kind of hear how the process goes along during the week. Yeah, and the other thing that talks about Martin Luther King being more of an economic reformer, not more of, uh, just as interested in economic reform, is that when he died in Memphis, when he was murdered in Memphis, um, he, he was in Memphis because he was marching with sanitation workers who were striking for better pay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
these were black workers as well as white workers. They were, uh, but he w- was very interested in, in raising the economic or closing the gap between the richest on top and the poor beneath. And most people don't know that about him or they forget about it. And this is why uh, he was severely hated by so many Americans uh, when he died. So coming back to kind of the, the miracle now of Jesus feeding the 5,000, you kind of implied it, but I guess in a more explicit sense, like what, where do you find uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in that story? Um, or you could kind of go the other way too. Like where do you find the hands and feet of Jesus in Martin Luther King's story, specifically the ones you told on, on Saturday? Yeah, I think the idea that people in power who are rich and have just, I mean, God-forsaken amount of money, <laughs> they will often clutch to their money the tightest. Mm-hmm. And they will say, that there's not enough for everyone. And this whole story for me is about people who aren't even in power, but people who have some power looking at what little food they have, them complaining to Jesus and saying, there's not enough food. We don't have enough money. And Jesus saying, I think there's enough. And that's when everybody realizes that they have more than what they want. I truly believe that's a miracle. And I, I mean, if this happened tomorrow, I would call it a miracle. If all yeah. of America woke up tomorrow and realized how much money we had and that it was more than enough to care for all of our citizens in generous ways, mm-hmm. uh, that would be a miracle to me. So I believe that Martin Luther King was trying to get the most powerful people in Washington to see that with the I Have a Dream speech, um, to see that with the drum major instinct sermon, and to see that when he was marching with sanitation workers uh, shortly before he was killed. Oh, yeah. Um, one example that you used, um, about living in a posture of abundance was immigration. Um, and you talked a little bit about that and, you know, some people might, might critique that. I think that was a really bold risk that you took. I thought it was a great risk. Um, but some people might say like, why, why do you, why is Craig being, uh, why is Craig being so political? Why is, He's just being anti-conservative or anti-Republican or anti-this policy. What, what would you say to that? Um, why did you take that risk to bring up immigration um, in, in regards to abundance or living in a posture of abundance? I get accused of being political a lot, <laughs> <laughs> to which I would say I, I am, and I just don't have a problem with it. What I have a problem with is being partisan. And there are times that... Uh, our two-party system will tell me which party I'm part of based on a stance that I take, right? I try my best to be as honest to the life and teachings of Jesus as I can be, right? I really do. And I have this real sense that Jesus Christ cares for the immigrants, uh, cares for the foreigners. Um, if If you back it up and talk about the character of God throughout Scripture, there is a theme throughout Scripture uh, through from Leviticus to uh, Ezekiel, that you, we should care for the people who are foreigners or immigrants in our land, and we should take care of them and, and be kind to them. That being said, a lot of Christians in America today are are very, very anti-immigration. Um, a, a lot of the politics that are enabled that are cruel to immigrants are enabled by Christian voters. Mm-hmm. And for us to pretend like Christianity today is kind to the immigrants, I think is rather problematic, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. And I will tell you, the minute I talk about immigration with, with even Christians here in Southern California, I'm not talking about other states, 
the minute we talk about immigration, it's almost always a conversation of scarcity and a, or abundance. Yep. And the overwhelming majority of Christians I speak to talk about immigration from a p- position of scarcity. Mm. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough jobs for them. So uh, my hope is that you didn't hear me say, let's just open the borders and not worry about it. Sure, yeah. My hope is that people heard that when we talk about immigration reform, Christians should always talk about immigrants and who comes into this country from a position of abundance. And I, I will tell you, Adam, I have never heard Christians speak that way about immigration. Um, and that's where I feel like we haven't made the story of John 6 real in our own lives. Yeah, you're talking about the, the transformational nature of many of Jesus's miracles, but especially this one. Um, and I think that's just a super powerful example of transforming our the way we talk, the way we act, the, the way our policies are set up. Um, we talked a little bit about immigration and environmentalism. Um, what are some other ways or what's another way that you see in our lives today, specifically in American Christianity today, where we take a mindset of scarcity over a mindset of abundance? On a political level, it's definitely healthcare. Hmm. I, I hear that all the time, that who's going to pay for it. Um, meanwhile, being uh, a small church, I can tell you that we pay for privatized insurance, and that's <laughs> the question is who's going to pay for that? Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. um, I mean, we pay for it, uh, but we are able to pay for yes, it. Yes, our, our pastors are too. <laughs> yeah, our, our pastors are taken care of, but we are able to do that because of the generosity of our congregation. Mm, yes. Um, I hear it all the time with healthcare, but I also hear it, you know, I hear it with uh, the way Christians talk about the world and engage with each other. I hear a lot of scarcity in the way that Christians talk, specifically with time. Yeah, yeah. Um, on a real personal level now, uh, I know so many Christians who feel like they are just so busy, to which I want to respond, why? Right. <laughs> like, you're in charge of your own schedule. Mm. And if you're not, I, I mean why are you still in this job that won't let you have any time now if you're a resident in medical uh, you know <laughs> and you just and you're an ob gyn resident like i i understand that's a different <laughs> thing because that's a season right and yeah. you can see the end of the season absolutely um but every job that you take should give you time and you shouldn't feel like you're at the mercy of your work schedule um and I think that if Christians move to that where they say, wait, I have 168 hours a week. This is more than enough time to live the life I want. Hmm. I think that will then change the decisions you make for who you work for. I think that'll make, change the way that you interact with your family. I think that'll change the way you interact with a church if you're part of a church. Um, and you can live the life you want to lead because there's more than enough hours in the week for you and for me to live the lives that we want. Yeah, Just that was far more inspiring to me than did Jesus literally pass out thousands of pieces of bread and fish, yeah. <laughs> you know, and change the laws of physics. I mean, that that's that transformation that, that you were talking about earlier. That's but so much our, more inspiring. Our society <laughs> fetishizes uh, Ooh, fetish super, superheroes. Mm. Like, yes, yes. Be, I mean we worship superheroes. I cannot believe how much money I personally have spent to see <laughs> Marvel movies, right? Yeah, yeah. I've seen all of them and I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing phase four. Oh I can't dude, do I it. couldn't. As soon as, uh, <laughs> as soon as Endgame was done, I was like, that's, I can't do it. I'm I've, done. I've given them enough money. 
But like we love, we love watching people bend the rules of physics. Like, mm-hmm. and we feel like that's what's truly heroic, right? Yeah. Um, so when it's, when it's, a, so when we hear Jesus is doing the superhero thing, our culture tends to make a bigger deal out of that. And I think what John, if John was with us and seeing all this, he would reprimand us and try to say, uh, there's something bigger that Jesus is asking for you, for from you, and that is transformation, an interior yeah. transformation, an interior journey to become more loving. I'm trying to imagine what like transformation man would look like as a movie, or <laughs> like it, would, it doesn't not, sound compelling at all. <laughs> it would be a it would be a small independent film that barely made barely made money in right our, in our exactly and that sounds exactly yeah. right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um a couple of fun questions to to wrap up here um what was something new that you learned about the text in john 6 as you were preparing for the story or for the sermon sorry i learned that john never explicitly said that bread was multiplied mm. the other the other accounts do i'm not sure which ones do and which ones don't yeah but john you read it closely and you're like he never said it was multiplied. Not only that, but he finishes by saying the fragments of the bread filled baskets, um, implying that these were little pieces from the original bread. In my opinion, it almost implies that he didn't multiply it more than he did multiply it, hmm. which is really trippy. Like that blew my mind. I, I couldn't unsee that once I saw that. Yeah, for sure. And it, 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 no pressure if there, but anything else that, because I just found that very fascinating. Uh, the, the, it being set during Passover was new to me too. Mm. Um, John is the only gospel that mentions more than one Passover. Yes. And for John to see this story and the next story, which is Jesus walking on water as equivalent to Passover, really, Mm. really challenged for me to see this as a liberation story. Nice. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see, or I'm not sure, but we're talking about Jesus walking on water this, this coming week. So maybe we'll see a little bit more of that. Um, what do you hope, what are the big takeaways from, from your, from your message this past week? What do you hope that people will be inspired to think about? I hope that people can look at this story and feel that they can be more generous. Um, I, I talked about this in the sermon, but the fact that it's a young boy who, uh, doesn't have much is the most generous person in the story, I think is really compelling. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I know people who make more money than me. I know people who make less money than me. I've tried my best to not live my life from the perspective of generosity is for people who have more money than me. Um, and you can be generous with your time. You can be generous with your finances. You can be generous with lots of different things, but to be able to look at your own life and look at invitations to generosity and to live that way, uh, I, I would hope that people can look at this story and walk away with this sense of I can be generous in my current situation. I don't have to be living my life from a position of scarcity uh, every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are all the questions I had for you. Uh, anything else you want to say before we head out? I appreciate the questions from the congregation. We're going to be yeah. asking for these for the next couple of weeks. We're going to give this a shot with behind the sermon, but I uh, appreciate the engagement and the discussion and I look forward to trying this again next week. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to see what goes on uh, in the process. So thanks for asking or answering all of my all of my crazy questions and uh, yeah, being so open with everybody. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. And to all the listeners, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. <laughs>